We go ahead and find our seats and we'll get started here today. So glad that you can be with us today. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. Um, we're going to be jumping all over the place. And we are finished, uh, we actually finished last week our series in the Ten Commandments. And we are now perusing through the rest of the uh, book of Exodus. And we're going to be taking big sections and looking at that. Um, but today, um, we are, have, a, have a challenging task ahead of us. And it's this. It's very important when it comes to making sense of the whole Bible. How does it fit together? And if you look, look with me, if you can, um, right after Exodus chapter 20, where you'll see the Ten Commandments, and then you jump down for the next probably a couple pages in your Bible, a few chapters, there's a bunch of laws, okay? Very specific laws for God's people. Three whole chapters, three and a half maybe. And that raises the question, how do we make sense of Old Testament laws for Madisonians in 2018? Like, do we just ignore these? Uh, these don't apply to me in any sense, or do they? Some of it sounds kind of harsh, weird, maybe. Um, makes me nervous. What do we do with these feelings when we read our Bibles? Well, that's a great question. And that's what I want to help equip our church to make sense of this morning. So today, this, this sermon is kind of more of a topical sermon, seeking to answer these questions and a, and a bit more kind of teaching-oriented. So um, this is one where we kind of, kind of got to fight to stay engaged, you know, um, and not space off if possible. And I simply want to just give you some categories in your mind for how to understand the Old Testament law and what that means for us today. So that's the question. How are we to understand the Old Testament law, and what does it mean for me today? Okay. Now, this is a huge topic that theologians have been wrestling with for many centuries, okay? And it's still a topic that people kind of have some debate about. And I've got about 35 minutes, okay? So give me some grace, if that's possible. And um, I also want to commend to you a book if you want to go deeper on this topic. This is called 40 Questions About Christians and Biblical Law by Thomas Schreiner. And so you might want to just note that uh, if you want to go deeper. I'm going to send you some links on Slack as well after this sermon um, to help you kind of make sense of some of these things in a, in a deeper way. So there's that. What I want to do this morning, though, is just give you some big pillars to hold up your thinking uh, when it comes to this topic. All right? All right. So number one, I want to help us see why, just, just to start off, why is this an important topic to understand. Um, and two, two things we could say to that. Number one, it's very important for you to know how to read your Bible. Okay? Real simple. And there's a lot in the Bible about God's law for his Old Testament people. It's all through Exodus and Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And when you're reading in your Bible and you come across these passages, what do you do? Right? Do your eyes glaze over and you kind of just kind of morph into skim mode, you know? And not really retain anything? Well, we don't want that for you. 
So I want to try to help you understand how to read your Bible when these kinds of Old Testament texts come up in your Bible reading. Well, secondly, there are many people in our culture, well, maybe not many, but there's some people in our culture that would say that Christians are hypocrites. And they might say that we pick and choose what we like from the Bible, and we just reject everything else. And they might be aware of some verse in the Old Testament that talks about how God's people at that time were called to not eat shellfish. And they might see you out one night at Red Lobster, and they're like, what's the deal? Right? What are you doing? The Bible says you can't eat shellfish. Well, the problem with this kind of objection to Christianity in the church is that it fails to understand how to simply interpret the Bible correctly. And that kind of objection displays a kind of a surface understanding of what it means to read the Old Testament law. Okay, so with those two things in view, like we want to equip you to read your Bible and maybe equip those who don't know God, uh, the God of the Bible, maybe an unbeliever, how to understand what we believe. With those kind of two things in view, the first question we have to answer is this. What is the purpose or what was the purpose of the Old Testament law? What was the purpose of the Old Testament law? Now, to answer that, we have to go back to our fundamental kind of point number one when it comes to interpreting the Bible in general, just anywhere. Not just Old Testament law. The rule number one is always what? You hear me harp on it all the time. Anybody taking Porterbrook? What's the rule number one in interpreting the Bible? Context, yes. Morgan gets the gold star. Uh, So context, context, context. We always start with the original audience in their context. It's them then before us now. Them then before us now. What was their original context? And we have to understand that first before we go anywhere near application for us. What was the application for them? Who were they? What were they all about? What was their calling? What were they thinking? We've got to climb into the world of the original audience of any part of the Bible that we're reading. And if we fail to do that, we can get screwed up in a hurry when it comes to application for us. Okay? So, who were these first people? Great question. The first audience of these laws in the book of Exodus or Deuteronomy or Leviticus— They were God's Old Testament people. They were called the nation of Israel, okay? And they were the people that God promised to Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, that he's going to have a lot of babies, a lot and a lot of babies, and you're going to become a great nation. Your descendants are going to be more than the sand on the seashore. And you're all, so you're going to have a people that's going to come from you, Abraham, that's going to become the nation of Israel, And they're going to actually live in a specific place with geographic boundaries, okay? And so it's going to be God's people in his place, and God said, you're going to have my special, unique presence with you. And over time, that became the tabernacle that we're going to talk about in a few weeks, and then the temple where God's presence symbolically showed up for them. So people place presence and then proactive mission. They have a mission— to be a light to all the onlooking people of the whole world, a light to the Gentiles, a light to the nation, and show them what it means to follow and love and treasure Yahweh God. And so to accomplish this, God saved them 
from slavery in Egypt, right? We went through that whole deal a few months ago. And then after saving them, and it's a settled deal, you're saved, done deal. I saved you, remember? Red Sea, waters part, you pass through. You are my treasured possession. You are my saved people. Now, in light of that, I want to teach you how to live in light of your salvation. Okay? And, and there were thousands and thousands of God-saved people living together in this specific place. And they needed to know how to relate to this God and how to relate to one another. How to love God and how to love each other in their context as saved people. What does that look like? And for this people who live in this geographic nation with geographic boundaries, national boundaries that you can see with this very specific and unique purpose that God has given them, they were called to live a certain way based on their context and their mission. That's God's Old Testament people with God's Old Testament laws. They were taught what their moral life should look like. They were taught what their religious life should look like. They were taught what their legal justice system should look like as they exist as a nation of people. So that's the original context. They are not Madisonians 2018. They're ancient Israelites a few millennia ago living in the Middle East. And so we always need to keep the original audience in mind. What was the purpose for them? And there may or may not be direct application simply because we're not those people. Okay? Okay, so number one, context is key when reading the Old Testament law. Context is a very big deal. We always have to keep that in mind. Who are these people? Climb into the world of the text. Understand that first, okay? Secondly, one other like kind of pillar I want to have in your brain to hold up this kind of framework or just maybe another piece of groundwork to all this is, the, is this. When you read the Old Testament laws, you have to understand the difference between what the theologians call the Old Covenant or the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant, okay? Another word for Old Testament laws in, like that we have here in Exodus that I had you peruse this morning or Leviticus or Deuteronomy Another word for those Old Testament laws is just the Old Covenant, okay? Or the Mosaic Covenant. And this is where understanding the original audience is so important. The original audience was under the Old Covenant. They were under the Old Testament law. But Christians today have heard from Jesus in light of these words we're going to read in a second— In light of this experience that we have every Sunday morning that Jesus ushered in 2,000 years ago with 12 disciples sitting in an upper room the night before he was crucified, and he said something where all of Christian history shifted. Now look at it on the screen here. This is from Luke 22. And he took bread, and we need to give him thanks. He broke it. And gave it to them, these were his disciples, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. So my body is going to be given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That's what we do every Sunday, as in obedience to this command. But, but I want you to feel the weight of this this morning and every time we do the Lord's Supper. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, Check it out, this cup that is poured out for you, what is it? It is the new covenant 
in my blood. It's the new covenant in my blood. What does that mean? Well, in short, what it means is that Jesus, right here, in this moment in history, is ushering in a new way for believers to relate to God. All of a sudden, it's going to be different. You're not going to be under the old covenant anymore. You're not going to be under the Old Testament laws in the same way anymore. You're going to be under me and this new covenant. Right here in Luke 22, he ushers that in. So the new way of doing things is all about our relation to Jesus. It's all of, the new covenant is all about our relation to Jesus. We're not under the old covenant anymore. We're under the new covenant. Okay, so again, question, what does that mean? What does that mean? Let's unpack this. What does it mean to be under the new covenant? Well, Jesus said this. Look at Matthew 5.17. He talks about the Old Testament law here. And he says this. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets or the Old Testament. Basically, that's just a summary of the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them, but what? But to fulfill them. So he didn't come to, he's not saying he came to teach the law or to tweak the law a little bit. No, he said he came to fulfill the Old Testament law. Meaning, all the Old Testament law is pointing forward to Jesus. It's all leaning and striving and yearning for the day when Jesus would come. The Old Testament structure, he's saying, is fulfilled in his life, death, and resurrection. Meaning, that time in its application is over. Okay, so there's a lot of examples we could pull out to uh, demonstrate this, but the best one is the Old Testament sacrificial system. Okay, so the Old Testament sacrificial system. God's people had these rules governing their religious life involving the sacrifice of animals that they were to do over and over and over again, century after century, to deal with their sin, to make atonement for their sin. And so the new covenant shows, and the Bible teaches this in the New Testament, that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament sacrificial system. And so I don't know if you've noticed, but on Sunday morning, we don't slay sheep and goats and do bloody sacrifices. Thank God, right? Does that ever dawn on you? Like, we don't do that anymore? Why is it that we don't do that anymore? Well, because the book of Hebrews and other places demonstrate and teach us that Jesus was the final sacrifice. That's what the New Testament teaches us. And since his sacrifice was final, never to be repeated again, the final, ultimate, everything's leaning and striving, all those centuries and centuries of animals being sacrificed, God just receiving it, saying, here's my Old Testament people, I want you to slay these animals because it shows that they're getting the, the, the wrath that you deserve. And I'm just going to accept these animals as a substitute for your sin. And all that, those centuries were just pointing to Jesus. And Jesus comes on the scene. And John the Baptist sees him coming one day and says what? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who does what? who takes away the sin of the world. That's what John the Baptist said about Jesus. And if you're a Jewish person hearing that for, for the first time, you got to have alarm bells coming off, going off in your brain like, oh, wow, this is not just any other lamb. This is the lamb of God who does what? 
Well, lambs in our history always take away sin. That's the Old Testament sacrificial system. But John the Baptist is saying there's a new lamb, and it's this guy Jesus, and he's going to take away the sin of the world. Jesus is the final sacrifice. So now he said that there's a new covenant in his blood, not the blood of animals anymore. So the old way of doing things is over. Jesus, what? He, Matthew 5, 17, fulfilled all of those Leviticus. You'll find a lot of these laws in the book of Leviticus. All of those have been fulfilled now. Fulfilled by Jesus. There's a new way of doing things in relationship to God. So all that to say, with the coming of Jesus, we learn that New Testament believers do not relate to the law in the same way that Old Testament believers did. We're not under the Old Testament law in the same way. We're under Jesus and the new covenant, the new agreement, the new arrangement. Not the old covenant, the old way of doing things, the old arrangement, the old agreement. Okay? So, what I want you to remember is that New Testament believers are not bound by the Old Testament laws in the same way as Old Testament people. Okay? Now, there's nuance here that we're going to get into. Okay? So if you have some objections popping in your brain, that's fine. Just hold on to those. But for the most part, those laws were written for those people at that time in history with their specific purpose. And we live in a different time with new information brought about by Jesus. So the technical term for this is called progressive revelation, meaning from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, God is revealing things over time. And this new covenant stuff that Jesus was talking about in the upper room with his disciples the night before he's crucified, and he says, there's a new covenant now in my blood, that's a major piece of how revelation has progressed from Genesis to the end of the Bible. Okay, and there's lots of other examples we could talk about, okay? But that's all that to say is based on new information that we have post-Jesus, post the book of Acts, obviously post-Old Testament, there's new ways of doing things, okay? That God has revealed in his word that help us understand how to make sense of our Bible, that help us make, understand how to make sense of the Old Testament laws, Okay? So let's make this as practical as possible, all right? What are we to do when, when, when you're reading your Bible and you got your, maybe you're doing your annual Bible reading plan. I would commend that to all of us, right? Have a structure imposed on yourself for your blessing to intake God's word in your life. And so we all have our annual Bible reading program or whatever you choose to do. And you come upon the book of Deuteronomy or Exodus or Leviticus, and you read some Old Testament laws, and you're like, I, I don't have a clue what to do with this. Like, what am I supposed to do with this? How does this apply to me? It's weird. I don't know what's going on here. So I want to just give you an action plan this morning, okay? So maybe you want to take some notes on this, because it might be hard to just memorize it in the moment here. Um, but four things I want you to consider when you run across the Old Testament law in your Bible reading, Okay? Four things to consider, four questions to ask. And I'm, I'm just borrowing these and rewording these from a theologian named David Dorsey, just so you know. I want to give him credit. Um, four things when we read the Old Testament law, what do we do? Okay, number one, you'll see them on the screen. We have to remind ourselves or remind myself that this law is not my law in its the most immediate sense, right? I'm not an ancient Israelite, okay? I live post-New Covenant. I'm under the New Covenant as a Christian, number one. 
okay? Number two, I got to ask myself, what's the original meaning? Again, like we talked about context, context, context. What's the original meaning, and why was this original meaning important for an Old Testament believer? So I got to climb into their world again, okay? Number three, what does this Old Testament law teach me about God's heart? What does this Old Testament law teach me about God's heart? And then number four, in light of God's heart, what does that mean for me as a New Testament believer? What does that mean for me in light of the New Testament that I read, in light of the new covenant that Jesus has ushered in? Okay? So we're going to do, like, just give me a quick, let me give you a quick example. If you read anything about the sacrificial system in the book of Leviticus, you immediately want to be thinking about the cross. Jesus is the final sacrifice. Okay, so if I read Leviticus, as a new covenant believer, I'm going, fast forward, this doesn't apply to me anymore in the same way. What does apply to me? The gospel. Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So in that sense, Leviticus can still have meaning for us. It should just shine a huge floodlight on 2,000 years ago history and what Jesus did in the cross and the empty tomb. Make sense? Okay, let's, let's, let's just do some test cases. Let's just practice this. I'm going to give you three examples where you just practice, Okay. Um, you're reading your Bible, Bible reading plan for that day is Exodus 22, 5. That's just right after the Ten Commandments we have this. What does it say? It says this, If a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed over, or lets his beast loose, and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and in his own vineyard. All right. So that's kind of weird. I don't, I don't own any beasts. Well, I do have a dog, but uh, I don't, she's not very beastly. Uh, I don't let her roam all over the neighborhood. Um, I'm not like a farmer, so I don't live in like a agrarian-driven neighborhood other than like Madison hippies that want to have gardens and do everything all natural. But other than that, um, and we're, we're, we're part of that gang, we celebrate that, um, but this law, number one, what's the point? The point is, the, the, the first point was this. This law is not my law. I'm not an ancient Israelite. I don't, have a, I don't live in an agrarian society that has oxes and donkeys and stuff like that. Right? All right. So that helps me. I don't have a field. I don't have animals that roam all over the place. Okay? Number two, what were we supposed to do? What's the original meaning for the original audience? Well, this is a specific law that essentially, if you read it, what's the essence of it? The essence is, has to do with stealing, right? If you have an animal that's in your possession and you let that animal go into somebody else's field and take what's theirs, that's just stealing. That's not good, right? God is telling his Old Testament people in this time, in this place, ancient Israel, a few millennia ago, don't steal from each other. This is just an application of the, one of the Ten Commandments, right? Don't steal. So he's helping his people think through what's that going to look like in your society. You guys are a society that has lots of ox and donkeys and, and animals to help you have food and, and maintain your culture, right? And if you steal from each other, well, what do you need to do? Well, you need to make it right. Make restitution. All right, so that's the original context. And then thirdly, what, what's this teach me about the heart of God? Why, why would God say this? What's going on in God's heart that he would say this for his ancient people? Well, he knows that if they steal from each other, it's just going to be chaos. And his people have a mission to be a light to the nations. And they can't be a light to the nations if they're living in chaos of constant theft from one another, 
right? God is a God of justice. We see that. God is a God of justice. That's his heart. He doesn't delight in people taking things that aren't, aren't theirs from each other. God desires that we love each other as he's loved us, not steal from each other, right? So that's what God, that's how we can see God's heart in this, right? And then number four, what do we make of this for those under Jesus' new covenant? Well, one of the great principles that you have to think about when you're reading the Old Testament is the principle of continuity or discontinuity. Well, that sounds kind of complicated. What that means is what are some things that continue and what are things that don't continue? I've already made it clear. The sacrificial system, discontinuous. It does not continue anymore. There's discontinuity, right? But there's also a lot of continuity with Old Testament laws. Well, where do we find that? We find that when the New Testament affirms what the Old Testament teaches. And when it comes to this one having to do with stealing, it's clear Ephesians 4, 25 says, don't steal from each other. We talked about this a few weeks ago when I taught on not stealing. Ephesians 4, 25 just says, no, this is a continual principle or law for God's people. We don't steal from each other. The New Testament affirms that. We're called to be generous and to work honestly so that we can make money and be generous with each other, right? And New Covenant believers, we're going to talk about this in a little bit, are filled with the Holy Spirit now. And so we don't have a desire to steal from one another. We have God's heart. God's heart is not a heart of theft. God's heart is a heart of generosity. And so if you're a Christian post-New Covenant, you're indwelled with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit doesn't empower, empower you to steal. The Holy Spirit empowers you to love and to be generous and be sacrificial, right? So that's what this means for me in a New Covenant sense. I see God's heart. I have God's heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. So this law isn't like some slavish thing I have to be fearful of, like screw up and you're dead. No, no, no. This is, this is the heart of my Father, who said that he loved me and he saved me and he's given me his heart so I can look at this with joy and go, oh, God, thank you that you've taught me how to live in a way that brings peace and life. So I love this. There's no condemnation here. I'm getting ahead of myself. All right, so let's do this again. Let's do another example. You're reading your Bible. You come across the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 24. It says this. You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or take a widow's garment and pledge, but... You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. Okay, this one's not too hard. Doing some easier ones first. Um, What's the big point? The point is, uh, you're not not supposed to abuse the sojourner or the fatherless or the widow. Okay, but, man, this is not my law, because I'm not under the old covenant, and I'm not a slave. I've never been a slave in Egypt. And I've never seen God save me out of Egypt. I wasn't there. Um, And maybe I don't even know any orphans. So how do I make sense of this for my life? Again, number two. What's the original meaning for the original audience? Got to climb into their world. Okay? So the meaning for them was this. God is saying to them, remember who you used to be. You used to be marginalized in the most significant way. You were a slave. And I saved you. So... What should that mean for your life? In light of that, how could you beat up on those who are weak in this world? Because you know what it means to be weak. You, you, you are the pinnacle of weakness as a slave under Pharaoh. And God, in his mercy, saved you and pursued you out of that. So, 
if you really get that you've been saved and you know who you are as a saved person, demonstrate that you love God and his salvation and treasure him above all by how? By treating those among you with justice who are marginalized and are weak. Right? Does that make sense? That was the original meaning of this verse for an original audience. Know who you are and live in light of it. Know what's been done to you, live in light of it. Understand the salvation that God has given you, live in light of it. All right, so what does this teach me about the heart of God? Number three. Well, God wants his people to demonstrate that they understand the implications of their salvation, by how they relate to the poor and needy. God doesn't prey on those um, that, are, that are weaker just because he's more powerful. Thus, we don't do that either. That's God's heart. He wants his people to be on the side of those who are marginalized. So number four, how do we make sense of this Old Testament law for new covenant believers? Well, again, here's another point of continuity. Because we read the New Testament, and what did Jesus say? Well, he said to this rich guy one day at a party, he said, hey, rich guy, when you give a feast, Luke 14, it's on the screen. When you give a feast, you're not marginalized, you're a rich guy. Okay, so here's what I want you to do, rich guy. When you give a feast... Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Why? Because they cannot repay you, but you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So there's consistency between Old and New Covenant here just straight out of Jesus' mouth. God wants his people to have a heart for the marginalized. Okay? So that's just the structure that we can walk through when reading Old Testament law. Let's do one more. This one's harder, a lot harder. Okay? Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21 says this, just another Old Testament law. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out of the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. Bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of his city, This is our son, stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of this city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And all Israel shall hear and fear. All right, that's heavier, isn't it? It's a little more challenging. What are we going to do with this? When you come across this in your daily quiet time, it's a little harder, right? So number one, what do we do? This law is not my law. I'm not under the old covenant, but under the new covenant brought about by Jesus. So I don't live in ancient Israel. It'd be illegal for me to stone my kids, thankfully, right? If they're disobedient. Parenting is challenging at times, but we're not going to do stoning, all right? We don't have elders of the city of Madison that I can bring my kids to if they're crazy, right? Okay, so we know there's, a, there's differences in context here. Number two, okay, so what do I do? I got to go back to the original context. Them then before me now. What was the original audience? Climb into their world. Okay, for, here's the deal. If you know anything about their world, you know what God said about them as a nation, as a specific people in a geographic location, the nation of Israel, called to be a light through how they conduct themselves to the whole rest of the world. And we talked about this in the Ten Commandments, where if, if, 
if sons and daughters are assaulting the authority of their parents in complete disrespect and disobedience, that's going to disrupt the whole fabric of this nation. Because this nation was predicated on families being intact. They were one big family. They all came from Abraham. Great, 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 great grandkids. Thousands and thousands and thousands of all from the same line, right? And so if we're all family and families break down, the mission breaks down. How can they be a light to the nations if there's just chaos in in biological families, right? And this was their mission. This was their specific mission. This geographic national deal has to stay intact. If it doesn't stay intact, no mission, no beauty, no light to the Gentiles, no come and see how great it is to live under the authority and the reign of, of Yahweh. If there's chaos relationally, it can't happen. And all Israel needs to hear and fear that, that like, um, assaulting God's given authority isn't going to fly. If that happens, there's no mission. There's, the purpose can't be realized, Okay. They can't tolerate this, right? So that was their context for them. All right, so number three, what does this teach me about the heart of God? Well, it, it teaches me two things. It teaches me that he takes his mission very seriously, that he's given to his people, that he's saved. And number two, it takes his holiness and our holiness, his Old Testament people's holiness, very seriously. So number four, what do we make of this for those under Jesus' new covenant? Well, again, there's a point of continuity here and a point of discontinuity. Continuity is, in the New Testament we read in Ephesians 6, the kids are still called to obey their parents. Okay, that's very clear. Okay, so that continues. New Testament affirms that. But we understand that we don't live in Israel. And we have a different mission than ancient Israel in terms of the practice. Jesus fulfilled the mission of ancient Israel. We don't stone kids that are disobedient. We don't live in a Christian nation with geographic boundaries. We're like, this is the Christian nation right here. That doesn't exist anymore. Where, where the united purity of all the people in that nation is the witness to the rest of the world. That doesn't exist anymore. But the New Testament does show that God's heart is still very serious about holiness and purity of his people. We don't live in national boundaries as, as a unity, as a unified geographic nation anymore, but what do we do? We live in a decentralized organization of all nations. What's that called? It's called the church. It's called where you sit right now. And every other square inch of this planet where that is happening, we're united. So we don't have stoning anymore. What do we have? We have church discipline, okay? And the Bible speaks very clearly about this in terms of the purity of God's people and how we deal with that. It's in Matthew 18, it's in 1 Corinthians 5 and other places. God's people are called to take the purity of the church very seriously. So in the new covenant, Jesus has created a church of every tribe, tongue, and nation and he called his church to live on mission to make disciples and teach them to obey all that he's commanded. That's Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Make disciples of all nations, teaching, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. Now, 
teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. If the church just says, eh, there's disobedience to what Jesus said, we'll just sweep that under the rug, no big deal. Mission's broken down, right? Mission's completely broken down. So Jesus has given a structure. Paul's given a structure by which we deal with where the breakdown happens in, in following what God has said. And it's just the normal practice of church discipline, right? So three examples, test cases for these four principles that I've given you on how to make sense of the Old Testament law for us today, okay? Now let me close with one final reminder. Let's go back to what Jesus said about how he came to fulfill the law. One aspect of the gospel that I think is very um, underemphasized is that Jesus lived a perfect life when he lived on this earth for 33 years. He fulfilled, this is very, very important, he fulfilled what ancient Israel failed at over and over and over again in terms of keeping the law that God gave them. Jesus came on the scene, he was Jewish, he was an Israelite, and he was the perfect Israelite. He never failed in any of the laws of God. In that sense, he fulfilled the law of God. He never sinned. And since he never sinned, here's the big deal. He can be our perfect substitute. He is the perfect lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. We can't have salvation from sin unless there's a perfect substitute, a perfect representative where we can be credited his perfection as our substitute, right? That's why Jesus' perfect life is so important. And, And since God saw fit to give himself in this way in Jesus, to lay down his life, to bear the wrath of God for our law-breaking that we deserved, and then rose from the dead to prove it all true, we can come to Jesus and trust him. And trust what he says. And trust what he did. And Jesus said that those who break the law can come to him and simply cast themselves on his mercy. See, his death paid the price that we could never pay. We're not perfect, but he was. We need him desperately to to stand in the gap of our sinfulness and be the perfect substitute for us. So, So that we, when we come to him, he who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21. And his resurrection shows that the penalty of death has been conquered. The penalty of sin is death and Jesus conquered it. The devil has no right to accuse believers anymore of anything. Jesus said it's over. It's done. Romans 8.1. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. No condemnation. If you're in Christ, if you've come to him in repentance and faith and say, Jesus, I can't save myself, but I know you can. I see your perfect life. You're the perfect lamb of God. You're the perfect uh, fulfillment of all this Old Testament stuff. And so now you call me to simply come to you, to cast myself upon you. And so when the devil whispers in my ear, you're condemned. We look at him, we say, no, you said it's finished. You said that you're the perfect lamb of God who can take away the sin of the whole world. And I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm part of that whole world and I need it. So I'm coming to you right now in faith and repentance. And if you come to him in faith and repentance... 
There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Then you are in Christ. What does that mean? It means you're united to him. His perfect substitution, his perfection is credited to you. His perfect law keeping is now your law keeping. When God looks at you, if you're in Christ, what does he see? He doesn't see your sin. He sees Jesus' perfection in your place. And this is the scandal of the cross in the world's eyes. That doesn't, that's not fair. Yeah, that's the essence of grace and mercy. It's not fair. God doesn't see our sin. He sees Jesus' perfect law keeping. And we get the credit for Jesus' perfection. He took our sin, we get his perfection. And then the Bible says, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anybody is in Christ with no condemnation, what? He's a new creation. What does that mean? It means you become a new creation fueled and empowered by the Holy Spirit from the inside out. So that what now? So now I don't fear the law. I just can love the law. How does that work? Well, I see that the law just perfectly reflects God's heart. And he said that if I come to Jesus in repentance and faith, I then receive the Holy Spirit. And his heart, through the power of the Holy Spirit in me that indwells me, now gives me his heart. So I don't look at these laws as some fearful thing where like, oh, I better get my act together or I'm condemned. No, we already established there's no condemnation for those in Christ. So I'm in Christ. So this doesn't have the power to condemn me anymore. What does it have the power to do? It has the power to show me God's heart. And as I see this father who loved me and sent his son to die for me, and I see his merciful heart, I want to draw near to him. And I want to hear everything he has to say. I want to know everything about his heart. Because his heart is my heart. And so now it just changes my desires. So instead of, like, being fearful of the command, don't steal, I'm like, no, I don't want to steal because... This is God's heart, that, that we have peace in relationships. And I see that that's a beautiful thing because my father is so beautiful and he laid down his life for me. And so I just want to be near him and I want to hear from him. And yeah, like, like if he says don't steal, like I'm not condemned if I fail. I'm just going to go to him in repentance and faith. If I fail, man, I'm just going to not be condemned, but I'm just going to return to him and say thank you. And that changes my heart. And as it changes my heart over time, I start to love what he loves. I start to think the way he thinks. I start to have a heart that beats after his heart. So the law isn't some fearful, slavish thing. It just shows me that my, my dad's heart. I love my dad. And I want to be near him. And so it brings blessing. It's helpful, right? And all of that comes through becoming a Christian and having God's Holy Spirit alive in you. That's the game changer for New Covenant believers. It's the Holy Spirit. It's very de-emphasized sometimes in Christian circles. But the Holy Spirit alive in you, post the book of Acts, given to new covenant believers, empowers them to know that there's no condemnation in Christ. There's no condemnation for those in Christ. And that empowers me to love God and then want to just simply please him because I love him. Does that make sense? That's how all this stuff starts to really make sense and land on you in Madison 2018. Okay? So Christians, the law is not some burden or heavy thing. Because of Jesus, no power to condemn us. We're free. But here's the last thing I want to land on you. We are free. We're free from the power of the law to condemn. But that's not a license to sin. This is never an arrangement where, oh, God likes to forgive and I like to sin. Good combination. That's not Christianity. That's a perversion. Our freedom doesn't stir us up to sin. Our freedom stirs us up to love 
for God and wanting to know his heart that wrote the law and sent Jesus to keep the law for us and sending his spirit to live in us so that as we keep in step with the spirit, see the book of Galatians, our lives produce a desire for repentance and a desire to live lives of holiness. That's our greatest joy. That's our greatest empowerment to live the Christian life. And may that be so among us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this word. We thank you for the fact that you have given us your Bible and that as we seek to make sense of this gift that you've given us, um, it empowers us to know you and to love you and to live lives of joy and satisfaction. Help us in this process as a church. In Jesus' name, amen.